Of course, here in John 14, we have before us, we have the Lord Jesus Christ in the upper room with his disciples, just 11 of them now. Judas Iscariot has already left. And, um, of course, the disciples are concerned. Jesus has been telling them he's going to be leaving them. They're frustrated by this. They're concerned. They're vexed because there's going to be separation. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first six verses in John chapter 14. Um, and he said to them there, let not your heart be troubled. In verse one, ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And uh, that is really the crux of John chapter 14. Uh, Jesus' statement there, where I am, there ye may be also. That was the concern of the disciples. You're going to leave us. We're going to be separated. We're not going to be able to have the fellowship we've enjoyed. We're not going to be able to have access to truth the way that you have taught us. We're not going to have your power in our lives. Uh, you're leaving us. And there was a sense of great loss and dismay, hurt, and heartache and grief as the anticipation for separation began to grow and build in their hearts. You know, when we think about heaven and we took some time to talk about heaven, when we looked at those first six verses in John chapter 14, it's true that heaven is a real place. And we talked about that. And it's also true that in heaven there, it's a real place with real activity. It's not a figment of someone's imagination. It's just not something to help us feel better when we lose someone or say goodbye to someone that we love. But if all we think about when we think about heaven is it being a place or it being a just a place with real activity, then I really think that we miss the main point about heaven. Uh, the main point about heaven is not bliss for God's people forever, though that is true. But the main point about heaven is that God's people are forever in fellowship with God. That's the main point. You know, that really is the message of the Bible in a nutshell. You have God creating the world. You have God creating all that is in the world. You have God creating man and woman. God tells them, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And of course, they did eat of that fruit. And that day they did die spiritually. They didn't die physically, but they died spiritually, and there was separation, there was death, there was separation between God and man. And all the rest of the Bible is a record of how much God loves his creation and mankind and the great lengths at which God has gone to restore fellowship between himself and his creation. And he makes it plainly clear throughout the word of God. And here we are in John chapter 14, and it's the night before Jesus is going to die for the sins of the whole world so that you and I can be restored in fellowship with God, so that these men can be restored in fellowship with God for all of eternity. So these things are on Christ's mind, and he's looking at these disciples, and they're struggling with all of this. But again, I, I want to point out to you that heaven is more than just a dwelling place for Christians to go. It's just it's more than a place where pain is no more. And if that's all we think about is, is it being a literal place, a beautiful place, an immense place, a place of wonderful activity. If that's all we think about, we miss the main point of heaven, because the main point of heaven is God's creation finally, completely reconciled to God forever and ever in absolute pure fellowship, the highest level of fellowship. So that's what heaven is. And, you know, we praise God because of the relationship that we have with, with God. We, we serve him because of the relationship that we have with God. And the dominant reality and the glory of heaven is the relationship that God, between God and his creation, and we we do have this relationship. We have a part of this relationship now. 
Holy Spirit lives within us. He's the down payment, so to speak. He's the guarantee that we will ultimately have the fullness of the inheritance in God, in Christ. But he is the down payment of that. And the truth is, in heaven, we're going to have a relationship with God that is absolutely perfect. That's absolutely complete. And in heaven, the ultimate peace it will be, and it will be the ultimate joy, and it will be the ultimate pleasure because we will be with the Lord forever and ever. And this is what heaven is. You know, I don't know that for most of my life I've looked at heaven this way. I dare say most believers have not. But this is what our inheritance is. Our inheritance is Jesus Christ. Our inheritance is the Holy Spirit. I'll go one step further. Our inheritance is God the Father. I don't know how many of us have thought of these things. But to put it simply, heaven is the presence. It's you and me who are saved being in the presence of the Trinity. The fullness of God. Our inheritance is God the Father. Our inheritance is God the Son. Our inheritance is God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. You know, when I pulled in the parking lot yesterday, I looked at the sign. Trinity Baptist Church. That's our name. It's been that name for over 60 years. Trinity. Now, why not Calvary? Why not a lot of other names? It could be any of those things. It could be good names. Trinity. And as I looked at it, I looked at it differently for the first time in my life, and I thought, that's my inheritance. Fullness of God. So the Trinity is our inheritance. Look at our text, John 14, and you're you're going to see this. I've not explained it yet, but we're going to see it from the passage, because this is what Jesus draws the attention of his disciples to. He says, you're worried because I'm leaving you. You're worried because you don't have what you need, what you think you need. You're worried because you're going to be missing me, but I want you to know something. I'm going to tell you this in a nutshell right up front. I'm going to send a comforter to you, equal in value and capabilities to me. He goes beyond that. Jesus says, but I'm not just going to leave him with you. I'm going to come to you too. Beyond that, he goes further in the passage and he says, our or us, as in himself, Jesus Christ, and the Father, are going to indwell you. So the disciples are concerned. We don't have what we need. We're concerned. We don't have enough. Um, You're leaving us. And he says, no, no. Someday you'll be with God in the fullness, in heaven. But until that day, you have all that you need. God is with and will be with you in every way. Let's look at the text. Verse 7. He says, if he had known me, and pay close attention to his words, if he had known me, Jesus says, ye should have known my father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Think about what he just said. He looks at his 11 disciples, they're heartbroken. He says, if you had known me, you would have known the father. You you would know him, you've seen him, and course, their response is, we haven't seen the Father. Look at verse 8. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And you can just imagine the look on his face. You know, the inference is here is, we haven't seen him. We haven't seen the Father. If you'll show us, we'll believe you. Verse 9, Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? Don't you believe that we're one, Philip? In the words that I speak unto you, Jesus says, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. It's an amazing statement there. Because I go unto my Father. Verse 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, 
that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, when we're praying according to God's will, that the Father will be in order that the Father will be glorified, God always says yes to those kinds of prayers. Lord, give me victory over temptation so that the Father will be glorified. You can expect God to answer that prayer. Verse number 14, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now look at verse 15. He says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless, Now he says, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, just the leaven of us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, this is about the third time he's talked like this, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Let's stop there, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at this passage. It's immense in its truth. Father, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would make it clear in our hearts. I pray that we would leave here today with our hearts overflowing, pondering in our minds of all that we have in you. That you've just not saved us from death and hell to come and promised us eternity with you in heaven, but that you are with us today. You are with us every day. Not just a part of you, but all of you. And that where we go, we take you. And the business transactions we make, we involve you. The relationships we engage ourselves in, we engage you in. Father, I pray that you would make these things clear to us as you did to his disciples, your disciples, 2,000 years ago. Help us, I pray. Glorify your name in us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read a verse to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 19. The Apostle Paul asked a question. He said this, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You, if you're a child of God, and and I as a child of God, you know, we belong to God. And actually, we are his temple. We are his dwelling place. Now, it is true that there is a legitimate, genuine, real place called heaven. There is a place called the New Jerusalem. There is a throne room of God um, where angels bow before him and cry out, Holy, holy, holy. Eternally, they cry that out. Not just at one point in the past, like with Isaiah, and not just one point in the future like John saw in the book and recorded for us in the book of Revelation, but eternally in the throne room of God, you have God the Father there, you have his creation, much of it around him, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And heaven is a place where the Bible tells us Jesus sits on the right hand of God the Father. And we often think of all that we have, and I'm saying it like that on purpose, or emphasis that, but all that we have is the Holy Spirit, as if He were not enough. 
But I submit to you, based upon what the Lord Jesus Christ teaches his disciples, his heartbroken disciples here in John chapter 14, is that they are going to have everything they need in God. And he's talking to them about actually being the temple of God. And so I want to answer the question here this morning from the passage, what is it that we do have in God? If he's our inheritance, then what is it that we actually have in him? Well, look at verse number 15 again in our passage in John chapter 14. Look at verse 15, and I'll read down through verse 17 again. Jesus says this, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that, ye, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Now before we get to the wonderful promise, uh, or the provision of the Holy Spirit in the passage, there's a prerequisite. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God does not dwell in everyone. I think we understand that. Most simply, I could put it this way. Someone who has never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ is not saved, and they have not been born again by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God does not live inside of them. Look at verse 15, the prerequisite first. Verse 15, he says, If ye love me, speaking to his disciples, keep my commandments. Do what I tell you to do. We could all ask ourselves the question, Um, are we keeping Christ's commandments? Are we doing what we know to do? Now, why is this here in verse number 15? Well, I think it's here because it defines those to whom these promises are given. Promises like in verse 12. Look back to verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Because of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, you're going to do greater works than I am going to do. That's quite a statement. Promises like verse 13. Look at verse 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then in verse 14, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so there's this promise that the Trinity is going to come and going to take up residence in the life of every person who truly believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to whom does the Lord Jesus Christ make these promises? Well, look again at verse 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. The people who enjoy and benefit so greatly from the presence of the Holy Spirit are those people who love and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's those who love him who obey his commandments. It's when we love ourselves that we disobey his commandments, isn't it? But it's when we love him that we obey his commandments. It's obvious that this is how John, the penman of the gospel, according to John, it's obvious that this is how John by the Holy Spirit, defines a Christian, a true Christian, someone who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, someone who loves him, someone who, when you look at their life, you see the Lord Jesus Christ in them. And this is how John, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, defines a Christian. Four times, in fact, in this passage. Look again at verse 15. He says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Jesus says, look down to verse number 21. He says, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Look it down at verse number 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. And look down to verse 24. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. Pretty obvious, isn't it? Jesus says, True Christians love me and obey me. Now, all of us here are thinking, maybe, I don't always obey him. Well, no person has always, has ever always obeyed God. And that's why we're so thankful that our salvation is not based upon our works of righteousness. 
okay, which are as filthy rags. But a true Christian loves Jesus Christ. We all ought to be asking ourselves the question this morning, do I love the Lord Jesus Christ? Because a true Christian loves Jesus Christ, the Lord says, and a true Christian obeys him. A true Christian is not a Christian because they have prayed a prayer. A person is not saved because uh, they give money. A person is not saved because they do good works or they attend church services or because they've written down a date in their Bible and they can look back to a date. That None of those things are requirements for a person to be saved. To be saved by, the, by God, to be forgiven of our sins, requires that we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we are saved. Faith, trusting in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, trusting in his death and his burial and his resurrection, that what he did was enough to save me from my sin. That produces salvation. But John is here and Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's telling them these are the marks of a Christian. This is how um, someone who is saved is it's, it's, it's made obvious to those around him. They, they love Jesus. And they obey him. They do what he says to do. Christ said this in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? That sounds impressive. And in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You see, true believers are characterized by loving Jesus Christ. Not by all these fancy things. True believers are characterized, they're known, they're identified by their love for Jesus Christ and their obedience to him. In fact, Jesus is our example for this. Over in John chapter 15 and verse number 10, just a page over in my Bible, uh, the Bible says this, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. You know, we, we know that Jesus loved the father. Why? Because he obeyed the father. I wonder if our love for Jesus Christ is as obvious to others and those around us as Jesus love is to us for his love to the father. We know that he loved the father. He says it because he obeys him. He obeyed him. He did his will. Some Sometimes people in this life, people say they're believers. They say they're Christians. They say they're followers of Jesus Christ. They, they Sometimes we say that we love him, but no one would possibly know that by the way that we disobey him. And so we know that Jesus loved the Father because he obeyed the Father, and we are to demonstrate our love for Jesus Christ by our obedience to him. I'm going to move on from this shortly, but in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3, John talked about it there as well as the Spirit of God gave him the words to write, and he wrote this, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, I know the Lord, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. No, so it really is simple. Christians love and obey Jesus Christ. Christians love and obey Jesus Christ. Do you ever find it in your life true when you sin, when you don't obey the Lord Jesus Christ? And I'm not just talking about a once, a one-time situation, like you lose your temper in a moment. Everything's just right. The situation's just right, and you lose your temper in a moment. I'm talking about you find it as a believer, a child of God. You find yourself in a struggle sometimes between the flesh that you wear and the Spirit of God who lives within you, do you find that there's a battle there? Do you ever find yourself grieved because you're struggling to obey Him? Do you ever find that to be true? Do you ever find yourself to be grieved? Do you ever find yourself crying out to the Lord, God, I, I know what you tell me in your word about salvation, and Lord, I want to experience that. And God, I do not have the wherewithal within me to overcome this temptation. And God, I, I am sorry for my failing of you, but Lord, I need you to deliver me. Do you ever find yourself there? Yes or no? Yes. 
So I'm not talking, I'm not, and this ought to be very clear to all of us, I'm not, Christ is not talking about those who are genuinely saved are those who always love the Lord and always obey him and never, ever disobey him. That's not what he's saying. But a child of God is characterized by their fervent love for Christ. And so when we fail him and when we disobey him, oh, it hurts us, it grieves us, it breaks our heart. Okay. And he tells his disciples this. And let's, let's move on ahead to the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because those who are genuinely saved are those who have been promised the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Now, as I mentioned last week, heaven is a real place, but it's primarily a relationship. And I made emphasis of that this morning. And so, too, is the Christian life. The Christian life is primarily a relationship. It's primarily fellowship. Fellowship that had been broken. Fellowship that we didn't have. We didn't used to have a relationship with God. We didn't have any fellowship with God at all. We were just cruising through life, doing whatever we wanted to do on a path of destruction. The Christian life is not primarily an activity. It's not being a Christian is not being a part of a church. It's primarily a loving relationship between the Savior and the saved. It, it's a relationship. It's fellowship between me, the saved, the one who has been saved and forgiven of my sin with the one who has saved me and the one who loved me first. And as a result of that, it produces obedience in the life of a believer. And by the way, the more that I have come to love the Lord, the easier it is for me to obey him. Or I should say it this way, the stronger my desire is to obey him. I don't want to make it sound like it's easy to obey him. This flesh seems to, someday it's going to be put off forever, but it still is wicked. And to help his beloved disciples, our Lord doesn't give them more instructions in this passage. He doesn't give them a list of things to do. He doesn't give them more duties. He doesn't give them more responsibilities. He says it in verse number 16. Look there. He says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. In other words, Jesus says this. I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give to you uh, an advocate, a helper, so that you have the needed power of God to do what I have commanded you to do. And this, I want to tell you this, this is very, very personal. You imagine them, 11 men and the Lord Jesus Christ in the upper room, and they are broken. They are confused. You know, sometimes like you and me are in this life. Broken, confused, disenchanted, vexed. And so this is very, very personal. And Jesus says it there in verse 16, I will ask the Father and I will give you another comforter. And Jesus is talking to Thomas. Back in verse number five, Thomas struggling. He says unto the Lord, he says, we know not whither thou goest and how can we know the way? He's talking to Philip in verse number eight where Jesus had said that he and the Father are one, and Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Lord, I'm not getting what you're saying. I'm not comprehending all that you're telling me. We've seen you. We think you're the Messiah. We think you are marvelous. We think you are the King. But the Father, I've not seen the Father. Show me the Father, and I'll believe you. And so he's talking to Thomas. He's ta who doesn't know the way. He's talking to Philip, who's struggling to comprehend. And he's talking to Judas in verse 22. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Lord, why are you keeping this so small? Why would you reveal this to just the 11 of us? Whatever happened to the kingdom? Whatever happened to you ruling and reigning? Lord, and there's this misunderstanding. They don't know. They're confused. And Jesus says to them, I will give you another comforter. They were so afraid and they're so dismayed. And what does the word comforter mean? Well, it means to call somebody alongside of another. 
It's actually quite a general term. To call alongside for what? Well, we could say for anything. Or for everything that a person will ever need. Jesus says, I'm going to send you another comforter, someone to come alongside of you and help you and and advocate for you, to intercede for you, to comfort you, to encourage you, to teach you, somebody to warn you, somebody who has more wisdom than you do, someone who knows the truth, and someone who has more power and more experience and more knowledge than you do, he's saying to these men. Now Jesus is saying not somebody who's less than you are. I mean, what help would that be? I'm going to send you another Comforter. I'm going to send you somebody else who's going to be your friend, but you're going to have to carry them along the way. So not somebody less than us, but somebody infinitely more than us on all levels of capability. And, the, and again, the word comforter is a fairly general word, but the word another is very specific. Alas. And the Greeks had two words for another. We just have one word for another in our English language. Another. And really, he could have said, I'm sending you another comforter, somebody else. Keep an eye out for them. You may not see them when they show up. You may not recognize them, but they're the one that you're going to need. No, no. He says, I'm going to send you another comforter. And the Greeks, again, had these two words for another. And the word alas means another of the same kind. He says, I'm going to send you. I've been your comforter. Jesus is saying to these men, I understand. I understand why you're heartbroken. I understand why you're dismayed. I understand why you're discouraged because I'm leaving you and I understand that. But know this, I am going to send another. Someone of the same kind. That's an amazing, that's an amazing thought. Not less than Jesus Christ, but equal to him. And it's a very specific word, another of the same kind. And Jesus was telling them, that he was going to give them another exactly like himself. And Jesus did. He sent a helper exactly like the helper that he had been to these men. And by the way, this defines for us the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had done everything for these men. He had answered every question they had ever had. He had provided everything they had ever needed. He had supplied all of their protection and all of their provision and all of their instruction and all of their wisdom. And all of their knowledge, everything for these last three years had come from Jesus to these men. He had interpreted their experiences. You ever find yourself in situations you're saying, what are we supposed to learn from this? What's the truth I'm supposed to learn from this? Okay, I'm going through the hardship, but what is it that I'm supposed to learn? Well, Jesus had done that for these men. And Jesus was saying, just as I have been your comfort, your advocate... Everything that you have needed, I am going to send another comforter of the same caliber and of the same kind to help you. Just as you have needed me, Jesus was saying, you are going to need this one, the Holy Spirit. Jesus had not only told them the meaning of what was happening, but, but what was coming ahead. And so what do we have in God? Well, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we also have the presence of Jesus Christ. What is it that we have in God? Look at verse number 18. I'll read down through verse 21. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. Speaking of the resurrection. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath me hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Look again at verse 18. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Jesus was saying that he wasn't going to leave them alone as orphans without some help, without some comfort. Do you remember in the Great Commission passage of Matthew 28, 
Do you remember what Jesus said to them there? He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, he said, I am with you always. Jesus says, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. May it be so. Look again at verse number 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Wow. Jesus said he he would send the Holy Spirit. And now he says, not just the Holy Spirit, but I am going to come to you. And this is the son of God consoling the hearts of these disappointed and discouraged followers. They're heartbroken and they're deeply disturbed at the idea of being separated from the Savior. Look at verse number 19. He says, yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me because I live, ye shall live also. And what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the resurrection. How he's going to die, but he's going to go right through the grave and out the other side to live forever. And because he has eternal life, his disciples, the followers of Jesus, the, those who are saved by him, they too will also will have eternal life. First John in chapter 5 and verse 11 says this, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You see, this life is in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is in Christ. Do you have eternal life? Have you been forgiven of sin? It's impossible to have everlasting life and the forgiveness of sin without having Christ. In verse 20, look there, verse 20. He says, At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. At that day. What's he talking about? At that day. I believe he's referring to the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit of Christ came and indwelt the believers there, and on that day Jesus showed himself to them, and they knew that Jesus was in the Father, and that they were in Christ, and that Christ was in them. And he did come to dwell within them. And friends, this is a really, it's a staggering reality that Jesus lives inside of us, that Christ lives inside of us. And I, I read to you from 1 Corinthians 6 at the beginning of the, of the message that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit lives within us. But not just the Holy Spirit, but also Jesus Christ. And this is a truth that is repeated throughout the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, the, the Apostle Paul wrote about it this way. He said this, Even the mystery which, has, which, which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? What was the mystery? Here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope. You know, there are often times in our lives where we find ourselves, and this is not uh, unique to you or unique to me, but it is general in human, without, throughout humanity. There are times of hopelessness, hopelessness in a relationship. Hopelessness in a work environment. Hopelessness in our personal growth and our personal sanctification. There are times where we look at the situation and want to throw up our hands and say, what's the point? There really isn't any hope. What's the hope? It's Christ in you. And so when you go into the workplace tomorrow morning, uh, you don't go alone. And, and when you enter into that marriage relationship and you're working, you're laboring in your marriage and you're rekindling and you're seeking to revive and you're seeking to minister and to serve you, that person that God has entrusted into your care, you're not going alone. I'm not going alone. And when you go to bed at night and the days have been long and you're tired and maybe you've gotten a lot done or maybe you've gotten nothing done and you pillow your head, but your mind won't shut off. And you're rehashing the events of the day or the week or the month or the things that are coming in the future that you really don't have a clue about at all. And you find yourself throwing up your hands as if to say, I don't I don't have any hope. This is all going the wrong way. 
Why is this? I can't take this anymore. The hope of glory is that Christ lives inside of you and you will not enter the next day alone. Paul talked about it in Galatians chapter 2, didn't he? In verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And that's what Jesus was talking about to his disciples in this passage. He's saying, I'm going to leave you. Boy, this is not going well. But I'm going to leave you a comforter of the same kind. And not just another comforter, but I'm going to come to you as well. And I'm going to live inside of you. And I'm going to make you my habitation. And wherever you go and whatever you face, I'm going to be right there with you. It really is amazing. I could ask the question, does everybody enjoy the presence and the indwelling of Jesus Christ? Does everyone enjoy the, the manifestation of Jesus Christ in their life? Look at verse 21, the latter part, and the answer is no. In verse 21, he says it there, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Jesus says, I will show myself strong in your life. But who, what kind of a person is going to enjoy seeing Christ show himself strong in their life? Well, look again at verse 21, the beginning part. He that keepeth, that hath my commandments and keepeth them. Sometimes we feel like we're drowning. Sometimes we feel like we're all alone. Sometimes we feel like we don't have enough, or we don't have what, it, what it we need or what it takes. And you say, I want to see the Lord Jesus Christ make himself manifest and show his power in my life. Then, friend, can I encourage you to do this? Do what you know to be right. Do you, do you have his commandments? And are you keeping them? You say, yeah, 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 Pastor Ferguson, whatever. I, I, there's a lot of things I know to do, and there's some things I'm not doing as I ought to do. I, I, that, isn't that all of us, Pastor Ferguson? The problem is this. This is the problem in my life. This is the big issue in my life. Jesus says, if you want me to manifest myself to you, do you have my commandments? And are you keeping them? We do have his commandments. And we need to keep them. We ought to leave here today praying and saying, Lord, bring to my mind afresh and anew the things that I know to do. The things that have become a discipline in my life in many ways. And somewhere I'm struggling and Lord, I'm going to focus on these things that I know to do, and I'm going to leave the rest of the things that are out of my control up to you and in your hands. And I'm going to believe and trust that you, Lord Jesus, are going to make yourself, you're going to manifest. That's the word there. You're going to show yourself mighty in my life for your glory. And I'm going to focus on doing what I know to do, the commandments I have that you've already given to me. You see, if we are keeping Jesus' commandments, we do so because we love him. We love him more than we love ourselves. And by the way, you encourage my heart so often when I watch you keep his commandments. Because you know what it is to me? You know what it is to me when I look at you and I see you keeping Christ's commandments? It is a, it is a public testimony that you love Jesus Christ more than you love you. And that, by the way, is very abnormal in our world today. When I watch you obey him, you do so because you love him. And it's a wonderful encouragement to my heart. And it's only when we do that we enjoy the fullness of the love of God the Father, as he says there in that verse, as Jesus Christ shows himself strong in our lives. Hebrews 13 and verse 5 says this, Let your conversation, and the word conversation in the English means um, manner of life, the way you live your life. Um, let your conversation, let, let it be the, the way you live your life be without 
covetousness. What's that? Covetousness is me wanting something that God hasn't given me. Okay, so what has God given to you? These disciples, all of them were going to die a martyr's death except for John. They were all going to suffer for following the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know, I've never met anybody who suffered the way that these men suffered. But I know this, there is an element of suffering for every child of God who chooses to follow Jesus Christ. And we could say, well, it doesn't compare to the suffering of these men. Well, whatever, we don't live, we're not them. But I know this, there's an element, there's a measure of suffering when any child of God chooses to walk by faith and trust Christ and follow Christ and obey Christ and say no to their wicked, godless flesh. There is a measure of suffering. And I want you to know I see it and I respect you for it. I praise God for you for it. And I want to encourage you, don't stop following the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what you're doing as you obey him, you're choosing, it's a public demonstration that you love him. You love him. And you worship him. He says, let your conversation, the way you live your life, be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, why can we do that? How can we live our lives without coveting and how can we be content with what it is that we have? Here's why. Because he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Christ won't leave you. He's enough. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. The supreme, the Lord, curios, supreme authority of heaven and earth. The Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You know, I think some people think that being a Christian means to join an association or to uh, gather together with a group of people because we like their moral positions or we look similar or we're of the same age or we, we agree in politics or we have some of the same hobbies. But that is not what it means to be a Christian. And by the way, Trinity Baptist Church is quite diverse. There's a lot of diversity here. We don't all agree on this on every little thing. We don't. You know what? I'm okay with that. What I love about Trinity and what I long to see continue to grow within Trinity Baptist Church, while we may be at different stages of growth in our personal walks with God, and we may stumble and fall along the way, there is a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is a desire to obey him and to show him that we love him. And that's happening all over this room not in this room, but outside of this room, week after week after week. It's beautiful. So at the core, being a Christian means to be in a living union with the triune God, with the Holy Spirit, to be in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is to have eternal life, Christ living inside of you and me. There's one last truth, and we're done. What do we have in God? Well, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus talked about that. He talked about his presence, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I will come to you. And finally, we who have been saved have been given the presence of God the Father. Look at verse 22. And Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, so not the betrayer, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we, speaking of Jesus and his Father, will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. So this is, I think, wonderful. It's amazing. Judas says in verse 22, Why? Aren't you going to disclose? Why are you disclosing yourself to us, just us, and not to the entire world? And why did Judas ask this question? This is all part of the disciples' disappointment. Now, why isn't our ministry with you working out the way we wanted it to? 
why why isn't our why aren't our lives working out the way we wanted them to? Have you ever been there? I'm I'm a little I'm concerned to get more personal than that. So I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is very personal with you this morning. Why were they why was he asking this question? Well, he's speaking for all of them. Why? Because they were still choking on the idea that Jesus was supposed to be the savior of the world. And he was supposed to bring in the kingdom. In essence, Judas was asking, why aren't you going to reveal your Godhead to the entire world? Why are you just telling us about this? Why are we hiding in an upper room? Why are we all afraid of being arrested? We want to serve you. We've proven that. We've walked with you and talked with you. We've followed you for three years. We love you. And we're not perfect, but we love you. We believe in you. We believe you're the Messiah. Why isn't this working out the way that we thought it would, the way we want it to? Why is this thing so narrow? Where's the power? Where's the glory? Jesus, you're not overthrowing the Roman government. Nothing good is happening. The Jewish elite, the religious leaders are, are, have turned on you. What's going on? Aren't you supposed to be the savior of the world? Our lives are not, are not going the way that we thought they would or the way we think they should. And our Lord answers him in verse 23. And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man loves me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. There are two parts to that verse, much in that verse, but there are two parts I'll draw your attention to. The first part is our part. Our part, you see it there at the beginning of verse 23, is to know and obey God's words. This is so simple, isn't it? You say, I want to be a follower of Christ. Seth, I love the Lord. I want to do something great for the Lord. I want to serve him. Um, that's that, that was Judas' frustration. Why are you limiting this to us? Let's go do something big. You're the Lord. You're the Messiah. We've seen your power. Let's go do something immense. Wow, we still struggle with this today. Jesus says your part is to know and obey my words. You want to do something great? You want, to, you want God to do something great in your life? Obey him. Obey him. Obey him in the areas of your life where you don't think anybody else can see. Obey him. If anyone loves me, he says, he'll keep my word. And then there's God's part. And Jesus is saying here, this is the person that my father will love. And he says this at the end of verse 23, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. The Trinity lives in every believer. Look at verse 24. Before I read verse 24, I'll remind you of this. In Colossians 2, verse 9, the Apostle Paul's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this regarding Jesus. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So in other words, when Jesus took up residence in your life, when Christ took up residence in your life, you didn't get less than. You didn't get something less than God. You, see. you have all that you need. Look at verse 24. He that loveth me, loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. In other words, if you don't obey me, Jesus says, if you don't obey the word of God, then you don't love God no matter what you say. So what am I supposed to take from Jesus' words? Well, if I call Jesus Lord and I love him, then I give evidence of being the temple of God. If 
What kind of a temple are you for God? I've, been, I've asked myself this question this week. What kind of a temple? What kind of a temple do I make for the Lord? Do I bring him glory and honor? Or maybe am I kind of like the temple after the Jewish people were covetous and idolaters and rebelled against the Lord and God brought judgment upon Israel and they they sacked the temple and stole the artifacts from the temple and the precious um, adornment from the temple and people would walk by and hiss and look at it and say, what happened here? Something so glorious, something so amazing. Look what's happened. Why is it like this? And the answer would come, well, the people of Israel had a covenant with God. God would be their God and they would be his people and that he would protect them and provide for them, but they did not keep their covenant. They followed after other gods and were unthankful for the God that they had. And this is the result. What kind of a temple are you? What kind of a temple am I? What kind of a dwelling place for God do we make? The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And if God has saved you, then you are the, the temple of God. And knowing this, the question is then, how are we currently living? And I want to close by looking at a passage in 1 Corinthians 6. I read it to you, at least part of it, the beginning of the message. I want you to turn there. Very important, I want you to see it with your own eyes. We're talking about this idea of being the temple of, of God. And Jesus has made it clear it's not just the Holy Spirit, it's not just himself, but it is also the Father. Three in one, dwelling inside of us. The fullness of the Godhead bodily. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And look at verse number 15. We'll start up there, I'll read down through verse 20. Are you there? Verse 15, he says this. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Have you been joined unto the Lord? Does he live within you? As Christ has taught us this morning, his spirit, himself, and his father. Have you been joined unto the Lord? Have you been saved? Are you the temple of God? That's what he's asking. One spirit. Verse 18. He gets very practical. Flee fornication. The Greek word for fornication is porneia. We get our English word pornography from it. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. You're destroying yourself. What? He asks, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify, honor God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your spirit belongs to God. My body, my spirit belong to God. I am as a child of God in Christ and he is in me. And when I choose to enter into something that is inappropriate, I'm actually taking God, not just taking him with me to observe, but the, the emphasis of 1 Corinthians 6 is making him a participant in the sin. So I'm going to leave this with you. But I know much is said in our day and age. You know, I can listen to whatever I want to listen to. I can watch whatever I want to watch. I can react how I want to react. You don't know my issues, Pastor Ferguson. You don't know what I have to deal with, and so sometimes I just react that way. We are making God 
a participant in these things. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you don't have to worry about what's coming ahead. You don't have to worry about those things. I'm going to give you a comforter of the same kind. I'm going to come again to you. And you're going to know that I'm in, in the Father and he's in me and I in you. Not just me, but my Father, the Trinity. We are going to dwell within you. We are going to be everything that you need to be who you ought to be, what you ought to be in this life. I'm not talking about perfection here. But you know what? We ought not make excuse for sin. We ought not make excuse for the day in which we live. We ought to leave this place and think to ourselves, wow, if we pass the sign and see Trinity Baptist Church, God lives inside of me. God is going with me. To some of us, that brings us some shame. We hang our head and we feel nauseous, maybe. We feel sick to our stomach because of things that we have done. For others of us in this room, it brings great encouragement to our heart because what we are facing, frankly, is impossible without God. But we have him. He is our inheritance. We have everything that we need. With every head bowed.